fight themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please speak to us now for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, from time to time, I would adopt a little superstition that's a pretty common one amongst kids. Step on a crack and you break your mother's back. So instead of walking down the street normally, uh, I'd be uh, swerving from side to side. I'd be taking one long stride and then a couple of short strides to, of course, avoid the cracks. Now, I wasn't stupid. Uh, I knew that there's no logical correlation between stepping on cracks and the health of my mother's back. But I do love my mum and maybe it's better not to take the chance that there's some mysterious link there, some magical thing. It's an interesting dilemma when you're out with your mum and she's in a hurry and you're avoiding the cracks for her sake and she's saying to you, hurry up Stephen, just walk normally. Uh, we're in a hurry. And you think, well, it's your back that I'm trying to preserve here, mum. Of course, it wasn't a strong superstition and I wasn't always like this, but from time to time, I would pick it up and have a bit of fun with it. The human heart is easily hooked on superstitions. Uh, we readily seem to accept little laws which we then need to live under, like the footballer who must always put on their right sock first, otherwise they'll play badly and lose. And of course, uh, this uh, superstitious streak in us also manifests in religion with its various rules and regulations, uh, special rituals, special objects, special days or seasons. People can be superstitious about such things and the result is often legalism. That is laws that must be followed or we lose God's favour. Everything will go bad if we don't do this. Even Christians... Uh, evangelical Christians, if I don't have my quiet time every day, God will think less of me. Things will go badly. Uh, if I'm not active enough in evangelism, God will lose interest in me. Uh, if I do take Holy Communion every week, it will supercharge my relationship with God. But without it, I'm weak and vulnerable. Good practices can easily turn into superstitions and superstitions can easily deepen into laws. And by those laws, we end up judging ourselves and maybe others as well. We become legalists and it twists our doctrine in the end and it can ruin our relationship with God because the laws become our focus instead of Christ. We've heard how in Galatia, the Gentile Christians were being told that they needed to take on the Old Testament law in order to be real Christians. All their insecurities were being played upon and their hearts were being hooked on law. Some people might say, well, surely having a few rules in the Christian life is important. Um, laws help us to live disciplined Christian lives. But there is a big difference between a disciplined Christian life and a life under the condemning power of law. The difference, of course, is freedom. A Christian has the law as their friend, but they're not under its power. Christ is their master. A legalist has the law as their master, and they have lost sight of Christ. Today's passage tells us that we have to fight for our freedom in Christ, and it tells us why this matters. 
Paul describes firstly in chapter 4 verses 21 to 31 the ancient rivalry between freedom and slavery. And then in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 5, the present battle between Christ and legalism in the church. You'll remember that Paul began this letter of Galatians in a very fiery way. Well, here as he concludes this sort of explanatory section about legalism, he fires up again because he is fighting for the gospel itself and the salvation of his readers. So here, first of all, we have the ancient rivalry between freedom and slavery in the last section of chapter 4 in Galatians. And Paul's aim here is to show how the Old Testament law itself points beyond legalism to freedom. And again, we're taken back to the story of Abraham. Abraham initially had two sons. You might remember our studies in Genesis earlier this year. He'd been promised many descendants, but uh, as the story goes, he and Sarah were growing old and they were not able to have kids. Uh, so they took matters into their own hands and they sent, sent Sarah's servant Hagar in to Abraham to have a child by him on Sarah's behalf. Uh, not a practice that was unheard of at that time. And Hagar, the slave girl, gave birth to Ishmael. But the Lord said, no, Sarah will have a child who will inherit my covenant promise. And sure enough, sometime later, Sarah had a miracle baby in her old age and called him Isaac, through whom the covenant would eventually pass and from whom the nation of Israel would descend. Now, the false teachers in Galatia were quite possibly saying to the Gentile Christians, well, right now you're like Ishmael Christians. You're, you're connected, but you're not really properly part of God's family. You need to take on the Jewish law and become Isaac Christians. But Paul's saying here, no, the two sons in that Genesis episode don't represent different races or cultures. They represent two religious modes, two different ways of relating to God. It's about slavery versus freedom, he says. In verse 23, Paul said that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, whereas Isaac was born through the promise. In other words, Ishmael was the result of Abraham and Sarah's effort and initiative to get blessing for themselves, whereas Isaac was all from God, a miracle baby to keep God's promise. Paul says uh, in verse 24 uh, here, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. Now, uh, this is a, a strange and potentially dangerous way of interpreting the Bible called typology. Um, it involves noticing patterns in the Old Testament and using them to support current teaching. The Jews did it all the time, uh, including from this uh, Hagar and Sarah episode. And Paul's opponents were probably doing it also to support their arguments. But Paul is using typology here in a way that makes better sense of the Old Testament categories of law and promise that he has already been talking about in Galatians. He goes on to say here that Hagar stands for the old covenant, the flesh, human effort, the law, earthly rituals, earthly places, Mount Sinai and the present Jerusalem, and slavery. That's one religious mode, earthly and effort-based. Uh, 
But now there is the new covenant, which is built on promise, God's grace rather than human effort. It brings the joy of God's blessing to the hopeless, as it was foretold in Isaiah 54, which uh, Paul quotes here. And in the new covenant, Christians are children of the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly one. And so that's the other religious mode, heavenly and grace-based. Paul says to the Christians in verse 28, You are children of the heavenly promise, not the earthly law. And so he calls on us to have one clear allegiance. See verse 29 here in this passage, just like Ishmael, child of the flesh, resented and persecuted Isaac, child of the promise. It's the same now, says Paul. The ancient rivalry continues today. Those who try to make something of themselves by law-keeping will despise those who don't try and make them feel like they're not good enough. But in Genesis, Abraham was told to get rid of the slave woman and her son. Um, The rivalry was getting in the way of God's people inheriting his blessing. And Paul says here, if you are Christian, you belong on the side of freedom and you can't let anyone get between you and God's grace in Christ. This issue of grace versus law, freedom versus slavery, faith versus effort, is not a trivial issue. It's an ancient rivalry that's as old as God's covenant. Those who trust the promise must never give way to those who trust the flesh. Paul reminds Christians in verse 31, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And so he brings us back to what's going on in the church in chapter 5, the present battle between Christ and legalism. Paul makes it clear that this is a battle worth fighting. He's not a uh, cuddly cavoodle here. He is a, a ferocious, snarling pit bull. He begins by stating something that's now very obvious after everything that he's been saying. We were freed for freedom. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Uh, If you want a summary of the letter of Galatians, that verse is a pretty good one. For human beings, freedom is not a matter of having no master. It's, uh, It's about having the right master. Law is no longer supposed to be the master or guardian of God's people. Christ is now supposed to be the master of God's people. And that is human freedom, to be in Christ. He kept the law for us. He took our sin for us. He became a curse for us. He rose to new life. He's now our man in heaven. He's keeping our inheritance waiting for us. And in him, we are sons of God. We know God as our Abba Father. Christ is everything we were meant to be. And to be in Christ is true freedom, according to Paul. But we need to understand how Christ relates to us. C.H. Spurgeon once told a story of another pastor who went to visit a poor um, old widow with a gift of some money to pay her rent for her. And he knocked and knocked on the door, but she didn't answer. Later, he met her uh, again and said to her, I visited you and I kept knocking, but there was no answer. 
She said, oh, I was inside. He said, well, why didn't, why didn't you answer the door then? She said, well, I heard the knocking, but I pretended that I wasn't home because I thought it was the landlord come to boot me out for not paying the rent. Some people think that God is the landlord ready to boot them for their failure to keep various laws or, or various standards. They don't realize that when Christ knocks, he comes bringing grace and freedom, not oppression. So Paul says here, if Christ has brought you freedom from the law, why would you take the law on again? Why would you give back the gift that he has come to give you? Further, he says, there's no middle ground or compromise position. It's all or nothing. It's Christ or law. Uh, chapter 2 of verse 5, he says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. You can't serve two masters. You either trust Christ or you trust your law keeping. But if you choose law, then it's the whole law, not just some bits of the law that you have to keep. He says in verse 3, Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Legalists have a tendency to pick their favourite laws and focus on them and ignore the other ones. Um, I was visiting a family once who wanted a, a, a dedication service for their seventh child. And uh, Easter was coming and uh, the mum was telling me her rituals for Easter. She described an early morning trip to the fish markets to buy a seafood feast, which the family would have at lunchtime. At that point in the conversation, a, a grumpy teenager who was sitting in the corner uh, piped up and said, oh, I'd prefer to have steak. Um, her response, steak? You can't eat meat on Good Friday. She turned to me for support. Tell him, what are you having on Good Friday? I said diplomatically, um, I don't know yet what we'll be having on Good Friday. She pressed me, yeah, but you'd never eat meat on Good Friday, would you? I said, well, actually, I probably usually do. She looked horrified. The teenager looked triumphant. She was scandalized. And she said, get out of my house. She was only half joking. I pretended she was fully joking. She was only half joking because she was thinking, are you a real minister? The ironic thing was, she was someone who never went to church, showed very little interest in God or Jesus other than getting her children dedicated and not eating meat on Good Friday. And so they were the two laws or the two superstitions that she chose to focus on. And yet she had such a sense of self-righteousness about those two small things. That's how legalism often goes. Paul says, if you're going to go for law, you can't stop at entry level laws well, which was circumcision in the Old Testament, you have to keep the whole law. You have to trust every aspect of your own performance to make yourself acceptable to God and save yourself because you've rejected Christ. He goes on to say in verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. It's like there are two boats claiming to be able to get us to God. There's the grace of Christ boat uh, on which Jesus is the captain. It has a big engine. It's full of blessing. And we sit there and we trust him to get us to God. And then there's the works of the law boat, which has the law as the captain. 
and it's a leaky rowboat which you have to row yourself and you'll never make it. And Paul is saying to these Galatians, if you get yourself circumcised and start trusting the works of the law, you need to understand that you have left the Christ boat. You have jumped ship. You are in another boat entirely and it will get you nowhere. Here is what it's like to stay in the grace of Christ in verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It's not about actively trying to make something of yourself or prove yourself. As Paul says in verse 5, it's about waiting for Christ to deliver what he has promised. It's about not caring about externals, verse 6, circumcision or not circumcision, it makes no difference. Achieving certain standards in my Christian life, it doesn't matter. Trusting Christ for his gracious promise is the only thing that matters in terms of where I stand with God. Does that mean I don't have to care about my sin or I'm not going to care about the way that I live my life? Well, no, as Paul says here, faith expresses itself through love. And we'll hear more about that in future weeks in the book of Galatians. But I'm not saved by whether I have loved enough. I'm saved through faith by Christ. This, of course, can be a very difficult distinction because our hearts are so easily pulled into superstitions and laws. And we are so ready to think that it's up to us to be good enough. And there's this ancient rivalry between freedom and slavery being played out in the church as Christians try to stay focused on God's promise and the grace of Christ. In verse 7 of chapter 5, Paul tells the Galatians that they were running well. It was like they were in a running race. But then these other people came and started trying to trip them over, uh, which we know is against the rules in a running race. You're not allowed to interfere with other runners, but that's what these people have done. And it suddenly became very confusing to them. They started believing in these things that they needed to do. In verse 9, legalism can be very infectious in a church, like a pinch of yeast infecting the whole loaf, or uh, like the spread of a virus, a tiny virus through the whole community. That's the power and the danger of legalism. It so easily takes hold. And you can see how subtle it is, because according to verse 11, They'd even been able to suggest that Paul was preaching circumcision in other places, probably because, for example, he told Timothy to get circumcised so that he could preach to the Jews. But Paul's whole point is that it really doesn't matter whether or not you perform external rituals. What matters is whether you think they make a difference to your standing with God. Paul is absolutely sick of all this talk about circumcision and law-keeping. Uh, in verse 12, he suggests that if his opponents were so obsessed with circumcision, maybe they should go a little bit further. Uh, it's one of his crasser comments. Uh, but the point is that it shouldn't matter. And yet these people were going, about it, uh, going on about it such that it had taken the focus away from Christ and seriously tripped the Galatians up. This is something worth fighting for, uh, I guess, is what we can conclude from verse 12 of Galatians 5. 
So how do we stand firm in the grace of Christ and not be hooked on law? Here are three uh, quick tips to finish. Firstly, our attitude to other people will often expose whether, whether or not we, we are legalists. Check whether you are judgmental towards others, particularly perhaps for not fitting the right mould as Christians. Do you devalue other people who don't follow the rules or make some grade? Because often we judge others harshly because we also judge ourselves harshly. Uh, and there's part of us that thinks we have something to prove, and so they must have something to prove as well. Well, that is not standing firm in grace. Our attitude towards others will often reveal which religious mode we are in, grace or works. So reflect on that uh, to check your heart. Secondly, keep going back to the cross. You don't need rules if you have the cross front and centre in your Christian life. Paul has said, The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he has said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We don't have to keep cursing ourselves for our failures if we remember the cross. But there's also all the motivation we need there in the cross to be living for God. So reflect deeply on the cross and make sure you understand exactly what happened there and dwell there. That is how to stand firm in the grace of Christ. And thirdly, keep coming to God as your father rather than as your slave driver. You may have heard of John Wesley, great and famous preacher in the 1700s. He was the son of a clergyman and he was studying at Oxford to become a clergyman himself. He was so religiously motivated that he formed a group there called the Holy Club, which people started to bag out and call Methodists because they were so methodical and disciplined in their Christian lives. But when he later looked back on that time, his reflection was, I had then only the faith of a servant, not that of a son. He knew he wasn't free, in other words. He approached God as a slave driver rather than as a father. He was living under his own set of laws rather than under the grace of Christ. If God is my father because of Jesus, he's not going to break my mother's back because I step on a crack. He's not going to treat me as an outsider because I haven't followed some ritual. He's not going to turn his face away from me because I've been missing my quiet times. I should keep coming to him as my father and stand firm in the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for the grace that has come down to us in Jesus Christ. A blessing for the hopeless. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in that grace we are your people. We are blessed and we are free. We thank you that in Christ there is everything that we need. We don't have to add anything to what he has done. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm in that grace. Be aware of the subtle pressures and pulls that come upon our hearts. Uh, the temptation to trust our own performance and to follow the law in order to be acceptable to you, whatever that law might, might look like for us. 
Please guard us against that. And in the process, glorify yourself for the grace that you have shown to us in your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.